0: welcome back to Commodity Conversations by the team at Mercado, the podcast where we aim to keep you up to date with the latest trends, drivers, and moves in livestock, grain and oilseed, and fiber markets. I'm Olivia Agar. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. We have one of our favorite topics in store today, the global protein balance sheet, because while there are plenty of local supply and demand factors like herd rebuilds that are front and center and driving price, it's the global price and the global supply and demand balance that ultimately drives the long term outlook, particularly for beef. And as you'll hear today, populations are still growing, incomes are still rising. So, to chat with us about that today, we have Simon Quilty from Global Agri Trends joining us. Now, Robert and Simon recently presented on this topic at Gippsland Red Meat Conference, covering How the drought recovery is building into the picture, and also what impact the invasion of Ukraine by Russia could have not just on grain and oilseed markets, but the flow on effects onto protein supply chains. And speaking of the conflict, it is still a dominant factor for grain and oilseed markets, which this week we're still on high alert until there's clear progress made in diplomatic efforts to ensure peace. So the wheat market is still trading in that risk of war. And with global wheat stocks already at historically low levels, it's this uncertainty that's making for a really volatile trading environment. And for the wool market, it was a bit of a mixed bag of results this week. We had the largest single week offering since August last year. And the rise in the Aussie dollar is another factor in the mix there that's impacting export buyers' appetite. But overall, the eastern market indicator slipped just two cents and the fine marina section of the market performed really well. I'll leave it there for this week and we'll get underway with the episode. I hope you enjoy this one with Robert Herman and Simon Quilty.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Commodity Conversations. This week is brought to you by ProAdvice. ProAdvice offer tailored services to suit your accounting needs. They have a long history of working with farming families and they understand the day-to-day realities and challenges of farm life. Whether it be strategic and succession planning, improving your communication and decision-making or accounting services and business software solutions. ProAdvice will help your farm run more efficiently.
2: Hop on their website or give them a call to find out more. Rob, let's talk about when we, in the last week, have presented to the Gippsland Red Meat Field Day. You we were opened the address to the audience saying that there were more people living inside this circle than outside of it. Yeah.
1: For our listeners, we'll define that circle, Simon, and um, and it's great that you raise that. But the circle includes China and India and, and Asia and Southeast Asia.
2: And I think that that raises a really important question about the current Ukraine-Russia problem because not only is that circle to me um, showing that there is um, obviously a huge demand, but in terms of the protein balance sheet and where we see one of the most vulnerable parts of the world, should there be any conflict, is that 70% of all protein, whether it's chicken, pork or beef, trades into that circle. So Rob, it's not only um, huge for demand, but in terms of actual trade globally, For protein, it's probably the most sensitive area in the world.
1: They're not only countries that are emerging in terms of their household incomes, but they are large populations. And and Australia sits close to it, so we can uh, contribute. But the point you're making is that everybody's going to be impacted by that. And if we do get things shaking supply up, Um, this is where the the driver and the activity will be. So just give us a little bit more of a brief, and let's dig into this a little bit, because you did talk about exports to China and and imports and their appetite. We can't ignore them, and even though, and I'm sure you can touch on this, even though we do have geopolitical sabre-rattling, Simon, um, and I think that's one of the words I picked up from you, that's a really good one, Um, the, the underlying is that they're going to need protein.
2: They sure are, Rob. And so this, here we've highlighted um, the expected beef exports to China in the coming year. So South America is pretty bullish. They've got over 2.13 million tonnes of beef going into China, and yet out of Australia, New Zealand um, and the US, we're going to be slightly down and part of that is due to the liquidation um, of the us herd and we're expecting exports to be off about 5.2 percent new zealand's expected to be down 5.1 percent and australia with the rebuild my expectation at best case scenario we may have an increase of around about six percent but the overall net effect is that we are going to struggle out of those three major supply areas to come up with the goods. So suddenly, if China's needs are 255,000 tons more, and yet the global output by USDA was only an extra 40,000, Rob, the meat's gotta be taken from somewhere. To me, this all points to just this extraordinarily tight global balance sheet, particularly for beef, and the fact that if China steps in and wants to buy, there's only limited quantities, and they're effectively having to buy away from other markets that will need that meat.
1: So that that leads us to the a very interesting point, and, and I'll make two points here. The first one is that we should be so grateful that Australia has this wide diversity of markets, so that if uh, if somebody does get a bit of the brace and bridge with it, Simon. Um, there are other markets, and and if those markets are having product taken away, it opens it up for us. But I want to talk about the Australian slaughter and the herd numbers because this is an area where you really do spend a lot of time, and and it should and and you're I admire you for it because, um, it, it at times it can be um, controversial, but we are very very low, and you know the chart you put up down at uh, Gippsland tells us that you know in. In this last quarter, we've we've just had the third lowest kill in forty nine years.
2: But correct. And so, what's interesting is the figures came out yesterday from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, and they were really quite enlightening, Rob, for, for several reasons. Firstly, that it took it to fifty year low, um, which for the Australian herd, but more importantly, it highlighted that Victoria and New South Wales are at 60-year lows. So when we reflect on that, it says to me that those two herds in particular, Victoria and New South Wales, were extremely badly hit by the drought, and so a lot more work needs to be done in those two states. Queensland, interestingly, is well ahead, I think, in terms of the rebuild and has been for about... 12 to 15 months. New South Wales, in terms of the rebuild, Rob, I think has only just entered it in probably the last six months. And I think Victoria, based on these figures yesterday, has yet to really enter what I would call a rigorous rebuild. I think we've still got a hell of a lot more rebuilding before we even get close to what we need to do.
1: It's it's very sobering that, Simon. I guess part of the explanation is that we know after the drought broke, we continued to slaughter too many females. Um, and that was a combination of people finding out that they had empty cows and, and if you've got an empty cow, you might love her to death, but, gee, the money looked good at the time and that helped pay a few bills. And, uh, and also we had this, um, you know, just a strong market that kept demanding um, beef product. And uh, I know you look at these things closely Does that also play into how the feedlots are operating, Simon? Are they, I mean, they seem to be maintaining their cattle numbers um, regardless of the price of grain or the price of uh, feeder steers?
2: Yeah, look, and and I think that then reflects, Rob, that enormous global demand for grain-fed beef. And so when we talk about the global economy recovering, it's a two-speed recovery. And Australia, that grain-fed part of the market, is the top speed, that's the one you wanna be in. And also lamb is definitely a part of that top speed recovery. And I think that that momentum will continue and therefore the demand for grain-fed beef is gonna continue. And part of that, Rob, is the fact that the US is liquidating. They are the greatest supplier of grain-fed beef globally. They are likely to particularly stumble supplying into China. And even though we have 10 meatworks that cannot access that market, I think Australia will fill that void. So that momentum or desire for lighter animals, for feeder steers and viewers won't go away. I think that feedlot part of the market is crucial. But back to your point about the ongoing liquidation that occurred in 2020. So normally the 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 benchmark in terms of rebuild versus liquidation is about 47.5%. And during 2020, Australia was at 54%, Rob, for the entire year. Never before had we liquidated as, sorry, in 2019, I apologise, it was at 54%, a record level. But the momentum carried into 2020. And in my mind, we went from what I call a drought liquidation, which saw 2019 and those extraordinary kills that year. And the rain came in 2020, right at the start. And yet the female kill kept going. And we, it moved into what I call an economic liquidation,
0: which yes, you yes. rightly
2: point out is where a lot of farmers got such good prices for their cows They said, I'm taking the money and banking it. And they did. And that the other critical point, Rob, is you and I both know that first year after a severe drought, all the females, and, and your stud bulls, but they all performed pretty badly in that first 12 months. And I think that's what happened is that first year after the severe drought, the females performed badly. Anything that wasn't up to scratch, they were killed. And, and taken to the knocking box. So it was a really interesting year, and I don't think we've ever seen anything quite like it before.
1: Now, on, on commodity conversation today, we've got uh, we've got Simon Quilty from Global Agri Trends. And uh, if you if you reckon you've heard this unique voice before, that's probably right. You do have uh, you're on, you're on call a lot, Simon, and we really appreciate your time today. But I want to just take a little bit um, further, I guess, because one of the things that we is, is a lot of conversation around now is the, um, the the rumblings in the Ukraine and Russia. And I know at the last minute, and we both presented at Gippsland Red Meat Day, where it was a terrific uh, turnout. But speaking afterwards, there was a a lot of comment, a lot of questions about your analysis on what this might mean and, and what is the risk, what is the opportunity, what is likely to happen. So just set the scene, first of all. You've got, you know, and it mainly revolves
2: around grain, doesn't it, Simon? It does, Rob. Look, it re- first of all, it's very concerning, and let's hope the issue resolves itself sooner than later. But you're 100% right, Rob. Um, when it comes to that crisis, it's really all about the grain market and in particular, wheat and barley. And each are significant in terms of actual suppliers, the Ukraine, Russia, Kazakhstan in particular, and to a lesser extent, Romania, but they contribute to 34% of the global wheat trade and 34% of the global barley trade, Rob, with, with corn only being around 18% out of that region. So any disruption to the Black Sea and that area, the first to react would be wheat and barley. And I think, you know, it's, it's pretty clear by those numbers that if you've got a third of the global supply coming out of that region, then expect volatility should there be any war break out between those countries.
1: It's interesting when we do look at that and because livestock and chooks and, and fish and everything get fed grain. Some of them uh, are very highly reliant on grain. And I know that um, you made a comment about how you think this tightening of supply and, and its resulting risk or volatility of price might impact something like chicken
2: meat. Yes, it, 100% right. So, So let's just look at the numbers. When when the production of hogs, which you are more than familiar with, Rob, um, (laughs) it's it's around fifty to sixty percent is the grain component in that in that cost. In with regards to poultry, it's sixty or sixty to seventy percent, and in some instances even higher. Beef, um, in particular through feedlots, it's around twenty to twenty five percent. So as soon as you hit a problem it's going to instantly impact poultry overnight. And right now, just in the last few weeks, the figures in America show us through the Q, um, the quick service restaurants, the QSRs, that breast meat for the first time in 10 years, Rob, now exceeds the cost of a hamburger. So put yourself in the shoes of a McDonald's, a Burger King, who, often run, you know, specials on chicken um, burgers or whatever, suddenly your cost of production or in terms of that input cost, you first of all got a high breast to begin with, chicken breast, and now with disruptions throughout, um, you know, the Ukraine and Russia, that price is going to go higher. I can tell you now, Rob, it ain't going to last for long on those menus. So to me, that's the critical message.
1: Can I just lead you in a direction there? Because I want to come back eventually to what countries do to mitigate that problem. But you've just outlined a really interesting point about the, um, the Burger Kings of the world and the McDonald's. They are going, if that's the case, where the, the cost of chicken is going to mean, uh, be impacted, and, and remember, we're, we're trying to predict and forecast here things that are yet to happen. But what you're saying makes a lot of sense, Simon that's going to mean that the demand for hamburger meat...
2: You cut out of me there, Rob, but I think you said that means the demand for hamburger meat is going to rise. And to answer that, the, I think the answer is yes. And interestingly, in quick service restaurants, um, the involvement of pork, you'd think straight away that pork might be the one to step in, it really doesn't have a place like chicken and beef does in across America, in those quick service restaurants. So to me, it really is a two horse race. And it is going to see, I think the demand for beef and in particular ground beef go up from here. So that's a really
1: good analysis of, what, of the impact of a potential grain shortage might have on something as, as diversely, or as far away as a hamburger. Um, but Simon, Countries are doing things or have been in the past, have, have taken measures to guarantee and secure the food for their customers. Just go through that research that you published at the Gippsland Red Meat Conference about what sort of things they do and how that might be impacting uh, in this situation.
2: Sure, Rob. Well, it's, it was published back in 2011 by the United Nations. And it really looked back at the previous 10 years or so of conflict, and they called it the conflict trap. But effectively what they referred to as fragile states were particularly vulnerable um, when it came to high food prices and in particular, grain prices. And during the period of 2007 and 8, in that year, 48 countries, there was rioting in those years as grain prices shot through the roof. And what's interesting, Rob, is that they then measured the UN what were all the steps that were taken by various countries around the world to avoid rioting and to avoid civil unrest. And the four steps taken were, firstly, to reduce import tariffs and taxes. So effectively, they're lowering the cost of food coming into the country by removing those duties. They also increased, secondly, export taxes and placed embargoes on certain export items. So that was the idea to try and keep food at home and discourage exporting and therefore lower the cost. And then thirdly, they increased food subsidies to assist people in buying food. And lastly, they released food reserves to increase supply. Well, Rob, lo and behold, in the last year, Russia, China, Argentina, Indonesia have all taken these same steps.
1: I think of this week, we can add India into that list. They've just uh, released, uh, remove tariffs as well. So, look again, Simon. It's it's fantastic to talk to you. I, I we got terrific feedback from our joint presentation uh, down at Gippsland Red Meat. Although I do note that in the Stock and Land, they uh, they got your name in the uh, article and, and left me in as the Macardo guy. So I felt a bit like, um, you know, when. Uh, when Joe Biden was talking about uh, uh, our prime minister Morrison, that no one knew who I was. And that's a problem when I'm standing up beside a, a, a notary like you, Simon, but look, we're, we're, we're extremely grateful for your time. We're, we're really grateful for your insights. And I know that, uh, you know, the work you're doing is highly regarded and I thank you very much for coming on.
2: Thank you, Rob. Well, I look forward to sharing the stage again with you and um <laughs> I'm hoping that uh, at your annual conference, you and I might do the economic presentation together. So, um, anyway, I can. Well, that's,
1: that's if Laurel and Hardy aren't available. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Simon, and all he the best. Rob. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Commodity Conversations. If you're looking for more detailed information on commodity markets, you can head to the Mercado website and pick up a premium subscription which will give you full access to all our archive of reports as well as all the fresh analysis as it's delivered and access to our team of analysts. Thanks again, and until next week, take care.